0: Good afternoon, my name is Fred Youngling, and it's my privilege to welcome you to our quarterly lecture series entitled Synergy, Explorations in Science and Society. The purpose of this lecture series is to provide a platform for the UCSC and Santa Cruz communities to learn about the exciting research here in the science and engineering, in science and engineering currently in progress at UCSC. Many people were involved in the production of today's event Including Terry Hogan, Danielle Kane, Vince Navoa, Molly Jaffe, Ferry Ronema, Weiwei, and Christy Hightower. We are interested in hearing your thoughts and comments and any suggestions you might have for future speakers. Comment cards are available on the welcome table, or you can speak to any one of the Science and Engineering Library staff. Speaking of the welcome table, if you didn't stop by on your way in, please make sure you take a moment on your way out so that you can pick up copies of articles by today's featured speaker, Dr. David Hausler. You can also pick up your very own Synergy Lecture Series post-it notes, and we have a sign-in sheet for those of you who wish to be notified by email about up- upcoming lectures. We have created a webpage also for our quarterly lecture series which lists our upcoming speakers and we have some lined up for the next year already, including Karen Ottman, who will be our winter quarter speaker, presenting her research in March of 2007, right around the corner. Now I'd like to have Christy Hightower, our biology, biomolecular engineering, and medicine librarian, introduce today's speaker. Among her many duties, Christy selects books, journals, and other materials in her subject specialties, for the library and is a departmental liaison for Molecular Cell and Developmental Biology, Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, and Biomolecular Engineering. Christy?
1: Well, thank you all for being here today. We are honored and delighted to have Dr. David Hausler as our 2006 Fall Synergy Lecturer. Dr. Hausler has been a member of the UCSC faculty since 1986 and is currently a professor in the biomolecular engineering department, an investigator for the prestigious Howard Hughes Medical Institute, director of the UCSC Center for Biomolecular Science and Engineering, and he is also the scientific co-director of the California Institute for Quantitative Biomedical Research. Dr. Hausler has won so many prestigious awards, it was difficult for me to decide which ones to highlight today. But in the past year alone, he has been elected to the National Academy of Sciences and to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And he was also the 2006 recipient of the Dixon Prize for Science offered by Carnegie Mellon University. Dr. Hausler is arguably one of the most influential contributors to the field of computational biology. He is known among his peers for his groundbreaking contributions that have changed the scientific world beyond science and engineering. Dr. Hausler pioneered the use of mathematical computer models for analyzing DNA, RNA, and protein sequences with specific applications to finding protein coding and RNA genes in the human and other genomes, and predicting three-dimensional protein folding based on similarities to other proteins with known structures. This work led to his pivotal role in the assembly and distribution of the first draft of the human genome and to the subsequent development of the UCSC Genome Browser, a tool that allows rapid comparisons of the genomes between species. This freely available online tool is used extensively by biomedical researchers around the world to make a variety of different kinds of discoveries. Currently, Dr. Hausler conducts research focusing on comparative and evolutionary genomics. And he participates in global genome project planning with an international community of scientific leaders aimed at discovering and characterizing all regions of the human genome that are crucial to biological function. In today's lecture, he will discuss his current work in reconstructing the genome of the common ancestor of all placental mammals. Please join me in welcoming Professor David Hausler.
2: Well, uh, thanks so much, Christy. And thanks, Fred. Uh, Thanks to all the organizers of this uh, seminar. Fred has been my guide, uh, intellectual guide, in many ways here in the library for 20 years now. Everybody knows that I've been here for 20 years now after that introduction, 1986. And I was just thinking of how fond I was of this room, and now it's all electronic, you know, and you never see me around here anymore. But I'm still haunting the journals, and uh, it's, it's been a terrific experience, and it's, it's great having having the guidance of, of that wonderful library to connect us to all this terrific knowledge. It's kind of energizing getting back in the library with print, for God's sakes. OK. Um, we're, our topic today is uh, the evolutionary history of the human genome. But I want to go a little bit back and and tell a little bit of the story. Uh, Christie listed a bunch of things that we've done. And I especially want to tell you about the people who actually did these things. I'm just the head of the lab. but. But uh, the people who actually did the work are uh, exceptional, and, and I think they've accomplished a lot. So uh, if we look at the human genome, we have to think about the miracle of life, actually, not only at two levels. One, the evolutionary level over uh, several billion years of evolution on this planet, starting with very simple forms up to the complex life forms that we see today. And also the drama that's played out every time a child is born, starting with the fertilized oocyte that contains that genetic information and developing from there into an entire body and brain. It is uh, a miraculous and poorly understood process at this time. The information to carry out that amazing feat to go from the one cell, the fertilized oocyte, to an entire person is carried in the genome. Three billion bases of A's, C's, T's, and G's arrayed across 22 autosomes and the sex chromosomes constitute, uh, as it were, some kind of recipe uh, to build this structure. Inside that DNA sequence are a number of segments that are known as genes. Each gene uh, is a piece of DNA that codes for a protein, or, as we'll see, sometimes codes for a structural RNA, or some other object, but usually a protein sequence. But these genes only account for 1.5% of our genome. So one of the stunning things that we've learned through the efforts of molecular biologists over the last decades is that, in fact, the genome contains much more information uh, than we expected in a form that's not uh, doing the usual thing of making protein sequences. This is very different from a bacterial genome where almost every base is there to make a protein. If we look at this process of making a protein from a segment of DNA it goes something like this. We start out with a piece of DNA contained in the chromosome and there are some signals upstream from that piece of DNA, a promoter and an enhancer in this case that signal the cell to actually generate an RNA transcript of that segment of DNA. At that point, uh, once the transcript is made, introns are taken out of it. So these are small pieces of, uh, actually large in the human genome, but they are pieces of DNA that will not go on to produce a protein sequence. So after this trimming down and some attachment of different information at either end of the RNA sequence, the mature RNA is then exported from the nucleus of the cell and translated by a marvelous machine called the ribosome. Our own Harry Noller here at Santa Cruz has done spectacular work uh, in understanding the inner workings and structure of that molecular machine. What it does is attaches the uh, mRNA sequence and reads through that messenger RNA, and it reads the bases of the messenger RNA three at a time. And human genes all start with the three bases, ATG, which codes for the amino acid methionine, and then they continue on three at a time as we go across this time coding for valine and so forth until they reach a triplet uh, that signals stop. One of those triplets is TGA. At that point the mature uh, the protein is released and further processing happens and the protein then goes out and does some work in the cell. It might be a structural protein, it might perform some enzymatic function, it might carry information, it might actually come back to the DNA and bind at a certain point to signal the turning on of a different gene. So the activity of all of these things is orchestrated by the genome, and the recipe for all the structural elements is contained in the genome in this sense. All of this DNA sequence comes from a common ancestral life form that we are unable to completely understand and reconstruct at this point. But there is an amazing and stunning and wonderful unity of life on this planet through our shared inheritance of DNA. And as we'll talk about it's the change from parent to offspring, the minor changes in the DNA that are passed on from generation to generation that are the stuff uh, on which evolution operates. According to Darwinian theory Some of these changes are accepted and become fixed and create new species ultimately. Others uh, are reduced fitness and are not accepted. And through that process, many, many, many different changes have occurred in different species and evolved this marvelous tree of life that we see on this planet today. We are actually, of course, only a tiny, tiny fraction of that tree of life. Uh, Flies, worms, all animals, Uh, are all in this one tiny little segment, the metazoa. We set out to sequence the human genome in the year 2000 to finish it. Uh, We set out to sequence it uh, in the 90s. And when we did that, there were 20 centers worldwide that participated in one organized public project. This is a little shot of the Beijing Human Genome Center, one of my favorite shots. It goes on quite a bit on either side. I had to clip it to fit on there. Uh, it shows you the incredible number of people that were involved in this endeavor. I'm looking forward to going, actually, to I'll leave at 7 o'clock, going to see the, uh, my first visit to the uh, Chinese uh, Genome Center, um, this time to Hangzhou. I've never, it, actually, the genome project itself was, was uh, completely unprecedented in science, and since I'm speaking of the library, I'm going to digress a bit on this, in terms of the openness of the information that it produced. So it, it, if you think about the principles of a library and, and easy access to it, this was a library of DNA that was provided free totally unrestricted, immediately, within 24 hours, actually, of being sequenced from the National Center for Biotechnology Information and Coordinated Centers throughout the world. And it was assembled and, and uh, created, and created a, a, a resource that was available to everybody, just like a library with unrestricted access. And this was, this was a major discussion at the time. I'll go over a little bit of the politics here. Um, there was a competing project at the time by a private company called Celera, uh, And they claimed to be able to sequence the human genome faster and cheaper than the public effort. And they were going to uh, supply that human genome information by subscription to a number of subscri- subscribers. And so a, a conflict of ideology and also scientific uh, desire emerged at this point, known as the race for the human genome. And it was quite exciting. Uh, actually, the company put a lot of money into it and they had a lot of good people. Gene Myers is one of my very close colleagues who ran the informatics part of it. He's actually uh, a good friend of mine, my, one of my best buddies in college. Uh, we went to school together. Uh, he had a, an enormous amount of computational uh, power behind him to assemble the genome sequence that was produced by Celera, whereas the public project had not prepared Uh, to finish the human genome on this kind of a time scale. They were actually planning to finish in 2005 by laboriously sequencing chromosomal segment after chromosomal segment and then putting it all together at the end. Uh, But they adopted a strategy that was more like this whole genome shotgun strategy that Celera adopted, and the race was on. And that's when we joined in in, uh, early... Late 1999, and early 2000, UCSC joined in on the informatics to actually assemble the human genome, and the story that's been told often, but I can't resist retelling, is that a graduate student named Jim Kent actually stepped in in just the nick of time to actually put together that sequence. There was a prearranged date for which we were supposed to finish it that was negotiated between Francis Collins, the head of the public project, and Craig Venter, the head of the private project. And it was... It was June, uh, June 22nd, 2000, and we had to work backwards from that. There really wasn't a concrete plan to get the genome assembled and to do all the computational analysis. Jim stepped in, wrote 20,000 lines of code, and the rest is history. It was really an amazing uh, feat of engineering to combine all of that data into one first public draft. And that draft was built on practically no equipment. This was. Uh, the actual cluster that we built on, built it on, uh, a, a hundred Dell uh, desktops that were donated, half by the dean of engineering, Pat Manti, and half by the chancellor at the time, Marcy Greenwood. Now we have a bigger cluster. Um, that product, the first glimpse that we got of our genetic heritage over a billion years was posted on the internet on, June, on July 7, 2000. There was a lot of hoopla at the White House and so forth announcing these two achievements, twin achievements, the one by Celera Genomics and the one by the public. Um, but actually, little recognized in that whole hoopla was the fact that neither the public nor Celera had actually made their genomes available. So the act of putting the genome on the Internet, again, from a librarian point of view, that's the key point where you actually make your information accessible, free, unrestricted to everyone. I think that was an important moment at this point. And there was overwhelming response. On July 7th, you can see an enormous peak in the total output of bytes of information on the internet from the entire campus. That's what's being plotted here. Half a trillion bytes of information were exported to the world, worldwide, on that day, July 7th. And it eclipses the total amount of information that was present, that was exported from any previous day. This was humanity getting this first glimpse of its own genome. And you would think, I, I think you would think that it was, it was scientists first having a glimpse at, at regions of the genes that they had been studying for decades and never gotten a chance to actually look at. Uh, but in fact, word spread on the internet very, very quickly that the human genome was available, and people from all walks of life, but mostly cyber-connected types of people, got to it first. And uh, so there were many, many messages flying around the web about how many times Gattaca appeared in the human genome, and were there, were there mystical messages in the DNA. And so, so what actually happened on that first day when we looked at our own genetic heritage is quite a, quite a different story than one might imagine. But uh, now it's used by sober scientists all over the world, and it's used through a facility, again, that we provide here at Santa Cruz, and this is the Human Genome Browser. Again, Jim Kent was the original uh, designer of this and still leads a team, which has grown to about 20 now, uh, mostly staff um, and including some graduate students and, and postdocs that participate on this enormous project to take all of that information about the human genome and put it out there in a way that it's organized and in a way that people can retrieve it. Sorry, if I'm making a lot of library analogies, but I'm you know, playing to the crowd here. Um, that is incredibly important um, for understanding and, and the use of the sequence in biomedical research. Every day it's used by about 5,000 researchers. We get a million page requests a week, and I see some of the staff. In fact, the staff, you're hardcore. I just gave this talk an hour ago. What the hell are you doing? I I gave this talk in in one of the classes on bioethics. Uh, Third time, You're glutton's for punishment. Okay. Um, Yeah, so so this is the staff, incredibly dedicated staff who have come here to hear this lecture yet again, uh, do an amazing job in getting this genome out. And biomedical researchers all over the world really appreciate it. So what can we learn from this genome? There's an enormous amount of information about human disease and about the variation between humans that might be linked to susceptibility to disease or adverse uh, reaction to drug treatment and so forth, which we can can, uh, discuss at length at the end in question and answer period. And we are increasingly involved in the exploration of that data as we understand more and more about the variation. But until now, we've essentially had only one reference genome for the human genome. So even though we all differ, we don't differ that much. One one in every 700 bases or so are different between individuals. And the Human Genome Project was to get that first reference human genome. About 70% of it is some guy from Buffalo. Uh, We don't really know. It's completely anonymized. Um, other parts of it come from other people. Similarly, we have obtained one reference genome for different, representing different species. So we have a reference genome for the chimpanzee, one for the mouse, one for the rat. And again, that represents a snapshot of one individual. But at this level, when you're comparing the human and the mouse, two mice look virtually identical, two humans look virtually identical, whereas there's an enormous number of changes. Uh, Approximately 70 percent of the bases have changed. Between human and mouse, how did the bases change? Well, we shared a common ancestor, and this common ancestor probably lived about 85 million years ago. The common ancestor of all placental mammals probably about 100 million years ago, and through evolution, on the different separate lineages, different changes to the DNA have occurred. Now, there are three processes in that change that I want to in that in that three s- processes of evolution that I want to discuss by which bases change. The first is very simple. Neutral drift. As Darwin stated, the diversity that we see that is the grist for the mill, for evolution, is generated simply by random changes. And when those changes occur in a segment of the genome that is not functional, it creates a process called random drift, where the bases just wander around and change from base to base in different lineages by chance. That chance change can become, starts in one individual, but then it's passed on to children, and by chance it can become fixed in the population where everybody has the new version. Uh, there's absolutely no selection. If you think about Darwinian selection for fitness, there's no process of selection. This is just random drift. An example of it you can see in this last column. So here we've aligned the DNA from seven different species, including human. And we've aligned the corresponding region of a gene. This gene is FOXP2. It's a very important gene, in, we think, in our evolution. It's a gene that's required for speech. People who have an inactivation of FOXP2 cannot speak. We're looking at one of those exons that I talked about on the previous slide. So each of these tick marks is a little piece of DNA that codes for a protein sequence. And if we zoom in on one of those little tick marks, we can see the bases and how they translate into the amino acids here. In particular, this little triple of bases translates into an alanine here. Now, that alanine can be encoded by various other triples. In particular, GC anything makes an alanine. And so this last position, it turns out, doesn't matter. And so it is subject to neutral drift. It might change by random mutation. As you see, it has changed in various species by random mutation. However, the GC doesn't change, and that's the second process that I want to talk about in evolution. So the GC is under what's called negative selection. What happens here is that not that the G and the C suffer any less mutations than the other regions. All positions in the genome are constantly being bombarded and are subject to mutations. But what happens is that when there's a mutation in the G or C, it actually changes the amino acid that's made, that changes the protein, and by and large that's going to have a deleterious effect. So most mutations, random mutations, are bad for fitness. Those mutations will not become fixed in the population because the individuals carrying those mutations are less fit, according to Darwin's theory. So what we we see over time, and we're talking about 450 million years of evolution on this little chart, so what we see over time is that those changes, these regions that are very functionally important and sensitive, do not change. That's called negative selection. Finally, the most exciting part is when a region that has been conserved for a long time and has adopted an important function suddenly changes in a way that's beneficial. This is a rare event, but with so much time and so many positions and so many different species, it happens enough. And that uh, lucky change that creates then a feature that has adaptive power is captured in an event like this. So we think um, the researchers that you see here, and again, all the credits are always down here. I won't always read everybody's name. Uh, for the different features you see in the research. In particular, the research that discovered this was due to Ennard et al. Swantipabo's Pabo's group. This change, which changes a threonine to an asparagine at this position when it is tr- translated into protein sequence, is thought to have affected the structure of the protein in such a way that it would create an important evolutionary advantage. Now, since this gene is required for speech, the hypothesis is that that advantage had something to do with speaking. This only happened in our evolution, and we are the only species that speaks. And so that's the suggestion. Now, Svante Pabo has been working very hard to try to make a link between this hypothesis, that this change was, evolved, it was involved in the evolution of speech. And he's taken, uh, actually created a transgenic mouse that has the Human version of this gene in place of the usual mouse version of the gene. And he's listening to the mouse <laughs> very carefully to try to see whether the mouse is making any different sound. So far, nothing exciting. Um, but it shows you that this kind of change can be linked to the kind of other kinds of change you're probably used to reading about, where someone digs up some bones, and a paleontologist says, Oh, well, look at this. Here's an old form, an ancestral form of these bones. Looks like this is associated maybe with the change of, uh, of bipedal, being bipedal. So uh, y- you can read certain things from the bones that certain things have happened, and we know that we are bipeds, and, and, and that was a change that was very important in our evolution. But you can read different things from the DNA, and, uh, and you can read a lot more things. So what we're doing recently, and this is work by Katie Pollard and Sophie Salama. Sophie's here, I think, in the audience and the wet lab crew. Um, what we're doing is looking now, in, with our ability to compare all of these genomes to each other, we're looking for other exciting changes that might have happened and might have been under positive selection. And here is the candidate that we've come up that we're doing a lot of work on in the lab. It's a region chromosome 20 where you can see Uh, There were many, many positions that were under strong negative selection, indicating that mutations in these regions were bad because they were uh, functionally important. But then suddenly, in these positions, you see just in the human genome, a new allele or a new variant has arisen. All in all, we have a segment here of 118 bases that has 18 different changes that happened only in the human lineage. how much time is that? That's a mere five to seven million years since we diverged from our common ancestor with chimp. That's a blink of the eye in evolutionary terms when we're looking at a whole range of genomes. Our, our, our divergence with chicken was 310 million years ago. We had a common ancestor with birds. So this is an eye blink, and yet you have so many changes in this one region. That is a hallmark of positive selection. Now, Sophie and the, work, and the crew in the wet lab have looked very hard at this gene and discovered this region and discovered that it lies actually within two genes. There are two distinct genes. They are new genes that had never been investigated before. One that's read off one strand of the double-stranded helix of DNA going this way, which we call Human Accelerated Region 1 Forward, or HAR1F. And there's another one that's read off the other strand, sometimes called the Crick strand and the Watson strand, going the other way. And uh, that's the reverse. And the place that these two genes overlap is exactly where all of these events happen so suddenly from an evolutionary perspective, just in our lineage. So we ha- we were very excited about this and several other candidates that are almost as dramatic uh, in some ways. And so. Um, We wanted to know what this gene could be doing. And we could not find any evidence that it's making a protein or any evolutionary story that would hint that it was making a protein. And it turns out that entirely independently from this work, another person in my lab, uh, Jakob Pedersen, was searching the genome to find regions that looked like they were genes, but not the normal kind of gene that made protein, but a different kind of uh, gene that makes RNA that itself functions without being translated into amino acids in a protein sequence, some RNA itself functions. For example, we talked about the ribosome, the machine that translates from RNA into protein. The core of the ribosome is an RNA molecule that's not translated into protein, but functions as an RNA. RNA folds back on itself and makes interactions that are like the the interactions that you see in double-stranded DNA. And a hallmark of that is the presence of these strands that interact with themselves. That is a hallmark of a structural RNA. And upon analysis of the evolution of this piece of DNA, Jakob found that it shows those hallmarks. The changes that it occurred are consistent with maintaining this interaction between strands. And some of the changes actually altered some of the interactions in an interesting way. And this was very high on his list. And it turns out, I think Katie was looking at the browser one day, and this is the importance, again, to play to the librarians, the importance of having all this information together in one source. And we were exporting this. We didn't hide any of this information. Somebody else could have scooped us badly on this. Uh, We just kept exporting it. But one day, Katie's looking at her, her amazing Har1F you know, gene discovery, and lo and behold, another track of information pops up that Jakob had done in a genome-wide scan, and there's a little mark saying, this makes RNA. Bam! So you put two and two together, and we've got a new discovery here, a new kind of gene that makes an RNA, and it's evolved very rapidly in the human. Then, really, the luckiest thing happened at the next point. Sophie has a very good colleague, uh, Pierre Vanderhagen who works in Belgium and has a wonderful lab that investigates the developmental processes that occur in the, in, during the embryonic development of the human brain. He's an absolute expert in this area. And we told him this story, and he was intrigued by this gene. Obviously, one of the things that's happened in human development is that our brains have gotten a lot larger. In particular, the cerebral cortex has expanded enormously. It's three times the size of what the cerebral cortex was in our common ancestor with chimp and what it is currently in chimp. So something dramatic has happened in the brain development. The size is just the most obvious difference. Now if we look at the development of that cerebral cortex, it has a very interesting pattern. So what happens is that during early on in, in, in embryogenesis, about week seven, neurons start to migrate from the middle part of the brain up through the developing layers of the cerebral cortex. It's a, you can think about the cerebral cortex as a big sheet that's folded in all the sinewy pattern and sits on top of all the other structures in your brain. And in that sheet, there are six layers. These migrating neurons first come up through and build this layer, and then the next wave comes up through and builds the, goes through that first layer and builds the second layer and so forth. And And during this first part of, the development of the cerebral cortex from about week seven to week 19 of embryonic development, we actually, in, in, our, in our developing brains, this six-layer structure is created. Now, this happens in all mammals. It happens to build thicker layers in primates, monkeys, and apes, and the thickest layer, especially in the last part of it, is built in humans. This has been remarked, and physiologically you can see this, and that uh, extra thickening and of the, uh, larger Uh, structures from the layer account for the fact that uh, our brain is so much larger. Primarily the growth of the human brain is due to the more cerebral cortex. So this whole process is orchestrated by a special protein coding gene called RELIN. It emits a, uh, a signal essentially that tells the neurons where to stop. Now the really exciting news came when, when we got the re- experimental results from Pierre Vanderhagen's lab that showed that this new gene, this new RNA gene that we were talking about, is expressed at the very same time during human embryonic development. Comes on at about week seven to nine. And it's expressed in the same cells that export this signal relin that controls the development of the cerebral cortex. And during this whole time, these up to week 19, we have these genes both working simultaneously in the same special set of cells. And then they both then their expression levels both go down. So this is a very strong suggestion. It's not proof. It's not scientific proof. But it's a very strong suggestion that our new gene is also involved in this process of building a cerebral cortex. And this is, of course, particularly exciting because it's the fastest evolving region in the human genome. So needless to say, we're working like crazy. And, why are you? You're not in the lab. You, why did you come to hear this? <laughs> uh, we're working like crazy to, to try to figure out what exactly this protein uh, does, and it's, and it's something that's been... Um, it, it, it illustrates the kind of discovery you can make by comparing genomes and, and using a different kind of, of paleontology, uh, the paleontology of genome events rather than bones. So. Our challenge then is to reconstruct not just the history of this gene, but to try to reconstruct the history of all of the three billion bases on the human genome. This is a project that would have sounded crazy, maybe still does sound crazy to many people, but would have certainly sounded crazy 10 years ago. But it's actually possible with computer analysis and with the sequencing of all of these different genomes to work out the changes that have happened base by base in the genome And to do this on a grand scale, just like we did the genome project on a grand scale to get all the bases of the human genome, we want to do, by comparative analysis, a grand project to get all the evolutionary history of the bases of the human genome. This is a large collaboration, again, so you probably can't read all the names here, but it's a collaboration with Webb Miller's group, uh, primarily at Penn State, and also the People at the Broad Genome Center in, in, uh, at, at Harvard, MIT, the Baylor Genome Center, and, uh, and also Rick Wilson should be mentioned here. I think we'll, we'll, we'll participate in this at the Wash U Genome Sequencing Center. So we, our preliminary computer analysis of this is that we think we can get 98% accuracy on what happened to these bases over the last 100 million years. Before that, it gets dicey. It's going to be very hard. We'll never get back. Uh, 500 million years, except in certain regions that are highly conserved. Um, but, but all of placenta, all of the evolution of placental mammals, we think we can do a good job with. Here are the species that, roughly, the species that are being sequenced for this project. There have been some substitutions uh, since this chart was made, but you can see where we're concentrating in is this phenomenon called the mammalian radiation. This is the radiation of uh, mammals, placental mammals, that are different from uh, the marsupials and the monotremes that you see down here. But all the mammals that, that, uh, that have placenta have occupied an enormous number of niches since the disaster 65 million years ago that, that caused the extinction of the dinosaurs. They've taken advantage of this with an enormous number of different body plans and so forth. Actually, my favorite is not on here. The, the blue whale would fit somewhere in here. Uh, an enormous variation in evolutionary diversity uh, created all from one ancestral genome. Essentially the bulk of the variation comes back from one genome called the boreo ancestor existed about hundred million years ago. We think we can reconstruct that genome and what it might have looked like and what the changes were that led to some of the different branches that you see here. In particular we're interested in the changes that led along this branch from that furry nocturnal creature that lived at the time of the dinosaurs up to us. What were the changes in the DNA? Here's a glimpse of what we think that genome looked like for that creature 100 million years ago. Each of the colored segments corresponds to one piece of chromosome from the current human genome, and it's mapped back to the segment of DNA that we think it came from in this boreo-eutherian ancestral species. And you can see the whole karyotype laid out there. In particular, each one of those lines, those colored lines, represents now a reconstruction of the actual bases that existed in that old ancestors genome. Now our genome has, I've been rounding it to 3 billion, but the actual reference human genome sequence has 2.8 billion bases. There are certain parts of the genome that we can't sequence well, and I'm not talking about those. They don't contain genes. The reconstructed ancestral genome in our current incarnation has 2.1 billion bases and we think at least 10% of it is missing. So it's probably a little bit larger than that. The mouse for comparison has 2.4 billion bases. So not all mammals have exactly the same genome size, but this is in the ballpark. And we took the 23,000 known human genes and tried to map them back to what they look like in the ancestor and 91% of them gave a sensible answer, and we can't prove that that was exactly what the gene was 100 million years ago, but it's a completely sensible uh, answer. Uh, It doesn't include various glitches and so forth. It includes reasonable amino acid sequence and and passes some of our quality checks. You can view this information on a browser that we're constructing. And I gave, again, a little bit of the names here, but Brian Rainey is the person that's primarily working now at Santa Cruz on this browser. This browser is fascinating because whereas the previous, the usual browser, shows the human genome sequence, here you're allowed to turn the clock back in time and look at how that sequence looked 6 million years ago, 50 million years ago, 75 and 100 million years ago. How did that sequence evolve to be what it is today? So we're showing the rough, uh, rough, here you can see that there are segments of the genome that correspond to contemporary segments, and here you can see the DNA zoomed in. In particular, you can see changes that happen. So here's a change where a G changed to an A sometime before the common ancestor of humans and chimps. So I'm saying the ape ancestor. Of course, we need to get the orangutan and other ape genomes before we can more precisely place this. But at this early stage in the project, we can can already say that apes seem to have an A here, at least human and chimps, and the others. Uh, The ancestral form was a G. Well, what might that change have have, uh, caused? Well, there's a gene that maps here. This is the protein sequence in the mouse, and we can take that and translate the ancestor, and it comes up with a very, very similar plausible protein. So there was a gene here that was making a protein 100 million years ago, and in the corresponding place in the mouse, there's still a gene there making a protein. But interestingly enough, there is not a gene there making a protein in the human. So if you look at that sequence, and you understand that it's there to make a protein, then you can translate what that protein should be. In particular, TGG codes for the amino acid tryptophan. And so it's been making a tryptophan at that position for millions of years, and then suddenly a random mutation changed that G to an A. And as you recall, if you were sharp watching the first slide, TGA means stop. That killed the gene. Stopping in the middle is a bad idea if you're making a gene. So here we have a a distinct event that probably had some effect on our genome. And this occurred before human and chimp split, because we see the effect in both species. But it's a serious effect, because the gene makes a a protein called acyltransferase 3. This is a type of protein that exists in over 900 different species on the planet. A very important type of protein we would think for life, but somehow we get by without it, and chimps get by without it. We don't understand the significance of that. And it's very unlikely that we will ever recover that gene again. So you think about it, the way mutations work, they are random unlikely events on the genome. It's very unlikely that a cosmic ray is going to come down and change that A back to a G in some of our future progeny. Our future descendants and the chimps future descendants will have to get by without this fundamental type of protein, unless we genetically engineer it, which is an interesting question for the social side of this. Well, um, here's another quick example. Uh, To go through, it's very similar to that one. We have a cytokine gene here that occurs two different cytokines by a tandem duplication. We can see that in the ancestor if we look back, but it's missing in the human genome browser at the corresponding position. And if you trace this down, we can find actually going through time again uh, and comparing to the other species that there was a specific event, in this case not a change of one base to another but a deletion of eight bases. Now again, if you, read, if you make a protein by reading the bases 3 by 3 by 3 by 3, and you delete 8, you're really in trouble. After the deletion, you're out of frame. Uh, so things, what used to be a, a triple of 3 is no longer. It's shifted over in an odd way. And that apparently killed this gene as well. And this happened only in the humans, and we don't know, again, what the significance of this is. So the human genome evolves by these changes, Not all of them are are negative. Actually, losing a gene can be a positive thing in some cases. But some of them create new, different types of genes, uh, or alter existing genes, as we saw with the RNA gene. All of these different operations happen to chromosomes that create changes, and we hope to document all of these types of changes. So what will we learn from this? We've been focusing very heavily on genes that either make a protein, or in our case of the one that we're looking at, HAR1F, make an RNA sequence, but there's a tremendous amount of the DNA in the human genome that appears not to make either a structural RNA or a protein, and some people have called the bulk of it junk DNA. So Where does junk DNA come from, and why, why do people refer to it as, as junk DNA? Well, this is a, 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 a side story, but, and I won't go into the details of it, but it turns out that There are elements within our genomes and the genomes of all animals that are capable of making copies of themselves and putting those copies back in at different places of the genome. They're somewhat distantly evolutionarily related to viruses and maybe maybe many of you know that viruses are often RNA sequences for example, like HIV or SARS. And some cases, like HIV, that virus can actually integrate back into the genome. Well, this is not a virus in the sense that it doesn't ever leave the cell and go off into another cell. This happens within the germline. So if it happens in a sperm or an egg, that one of these things copies itself and makes an extra copy in a new location, then that change is passed on to your children. And you have your children have a slightly bigger genome. This process is happening all the time. And on an evolutionary scale, it actually accounts for the bulk of the increase in genome size, that along with whole genome duplication, which is a crazy uh, operation in which everything gets duplicated. Counteracting that is deletion. So large segments occasionally are deleted. And this is how the DNA turns over. Now, it's true that most of these events create junk. It's unlikely, just like it is a random mutation to hit a protein-coding region and do something beneficial to increase the fitness, it's unlikely. It's also unlikely that one of these operations where a gene is copied and put in a new place will increase the fitness. Most of it is junk, but sometimes some interesting things happen, as we'll see. So we use this junk DNA, so to speak, to estimate how much of the genome uh, how, estimate rates of neutral evolution, rates of neutral drift, and, and thereby estimate how much of the genome is under negative selection. And it turns out that 5% of the genome is under negative selection, whereas only 1.5% codes for protein. And this got us going that there's a, on the idea that there's a lot of treasures among the junk. Not all of the junk is interesting, but there's a huge amount Actually, more than is protein coding out there, that's actually doing something. And the reason we know it's doing something is we see the evolutionary hallmark of function, the negative, we see the evidence for negative selection. The strongest signal occurs in non coding sequences of DNA, and these have so strong negative selection that we call them ultra-conserved. They barely change at all throughout uh, the evolution of mammals and vertebrates. These are an example of such ultra-conserved elements. These were first discovered by Gil Girano, uh, post-doc here. And these elements are not randomly distributed in the genome, but they tend to cluster around certain types of genes, in particular genes that are involved in embryonic development. And what, if you look at the distribution of this presumably functional DNA, this other 3.5% of the genome that very few people have ever looked at before, it's non-random in the genome. It tends to be, there tends to be a huge cluster of these conserved elements around certain types of genes, and those tend to be the genes that are involved in embryonic development. And this kind of makes sense if you think about it. A lot of what's encoded in our genome is how to build a human being, as we said. Not necessarily how to maintain an adult human being, but how to build one in the first place from a single cell. It's an enormous amount of information that's required for that task. We understand it very little, but we do know that there are a number of genes that are really important in that process. DACH1 shown on this chart is one such gene that's, in, that's evolved at very critical stages in the development of the eye, leg, and nervous system. And around it are all of these fascinating conserved elements. And we think those elements regulate the gene, probably tell it when and where to turn on and turn off during this critical process of embryonic development. Here's another such gene. And now you're looking at the most conserved region in the entire human genome. This is the strongest evidence we've found for negative selection, practically no change in 400 million years or more. What is this one doing? this segment is near a gene called ARX, and it's also a very important developmental gene involved in the development of the brain. Patients who have a disruption of this protein coding region of this gene have various developmental abnormalities, epilepsy, and mental retardation. And every time you see a purple, this is a non-coding, highly conserved, strongly negative selection, selected element. They all tend to cl- cluster. In a, in a group around ARX. So we're studying these elements and the elements in some other related genes in the lab. And we're collaborating with uh, our colleagues at, at UC Berkeley for this. Uh, this is a real quick sketch. and I'm going to go through this quite, quite quickly. But the basic idea is to take the ultra conserved region in the human and put it in a special DNA construct that has the conserved element. And a, and a promoter sequence, remember there are sequences upstream of a gene that tell it to go on. So this is a sequence that is not strong enough to make the gene go by itself, but if it has something that serves as an enhancer, an extra element, it will make the gene go. And then the gene we chose is lacZ. so this is a special gene that we can actually see the effect of. This whole construct, then, is used to create transgenic mice. You actually uh, inject that into fertilized oocytes, and they have this extra bit of DNA, and the DNA is going to allow us to assay what is turning, when is this gene, this element active? When does it turn on and turn off its corresponding gene? We'll look at that uh, in the embryonic development of the mouse. So if you look at the embryo produced by such a transgenic experiment at day 12.5, you see this blue staining That indicates that those are cells that are responding to some signal, and that this element, this human element, is actually functioning as an enhancer in those cells, creating this blue stain that we see. And notice that the patterning is not arbitrary. They're all forebrain cells. If you go in deeper on this uh, and look in detail, you can see by sectioning, and Brian King does this in the lab, Um, what is actually going on at the very detailed level in the embryonic brain. And for comparison, if you ask, what is ARX doing at this time, this is what this image shows. So these dark regions show that the ARX protein is being created in very specific parts of the mouse brain at this stage. In particular, these little dots are tiny regions of the hypothalamus, which is undergoing some activation of the gene ARX at exactly this time, 12.5 days in mouse embryonic development. The surrounding tissue does not experience an activation of ARX. Now, in our artificial construct, we have a completely different gene, the LACC gene that gives us the blue staining and it has this enhancer and the enhancer seems to be responding to the same signals that turn on the reporter gene in exactly the same tissue, this tiny spot in the hypothalamus at day 12.5. That tells us that this human conserved element, conserved completely between human and mouse and other mammals, probably functions to turn on this ARX gene in that precise tissue at that time in development. There are thousands of these elements that we've found and there are a huge number of mysteries surrounding them at this point. When we look at them, we don't understand molecularly what the interactions are that cause them to be so conserved. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't there be some flexibility in this? What is the message that's written in this DNA that is so important? that you can't mutate a single base of it over almost a thousand bases. There's no current theory of molecular biology that adequately explains this observation, and it's a very mysterious thing. In addition to that, we have no idea where they came from evolutionarily. There are no similar genes, there are no similar segments in the, in the, in the fly or the worm, whereas there's similar genes. If you look at the protein-coding genes for ARX or any other uh, of these genes that we've been talking about, you'll find a similar protein coding gene, but the regulatory elements around it are completely different. It looks like they evolved independently. So these regulation, this regulatory system seems to be something that involved in vertebrates specifically, and we don't understand why. There's one hint, and this is the closing story that I will tell. I'm out of time, uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll mainly skip through it very quickly. There's one hint, Remember, I told you about the retrotransposons, the, the, the elements that make these junk copies of themselves? Well, we have evidence, and this is Gil Bejerano's work as well, that sometimes these can pick up an enhancer element and copy it into a new location and, therefore, thereby change the regulation of another gene. And we think that's what happened uh, with this ultra conserved region, that it was actually transported around the genome and created different, uh, different types of gene regulation. This is actually a different ultraconserved region that I'm talking about, UC338 now. Um, very, very quickly through the story, since I'm out of time, we discovered this by searching the genome of all DNA sequences that are known at the National Center for Biotechnology Information. Plug to the librarians here. It's wonderful to have that resource to be able to search all the DNA. And we were very surprised that we got multiple hits, hundreds of hits, actually, to a very obscure species, the coelacanth, which is a fish that is more like land vertebrates, more like tetrapods, that have four appendages than your normal fish. It's actually a different uh, clade or group of fish, and it's more closely related to the vertebrates. And in fact, the theory um, is that, it's the missing link, essentially, between the fish in the ocean that existed 450 million years ago and the, and the vertebrates that crawled out onto the land, colonized the land, and became land-going vertebrates. These are called tetrapods. It was thought to be extinct, but there was a, a, a dramatic discovery of a living coelacanth in 1938. We can trace the history of this element, UC338, this regulatory element, all the way back to that ancient time, back in the Silurian period, 400 and some odd million years ago. And we see the traces of it in all of the descendants. And we don't see it in other kinds of fish and more distantly related species. But what it is in the coelacanth is clearly a transposon. Because we have hundreds of copies. We estimate 10,000 different copies of this thing in the fish. So it is being replicated like crazy and going all around the fish. And it's only select copies that have actually become functional in the tetrapods. And we'll skip the biological evidence. Here's one of them that's driving uh, a neurodevelopmental gene, and this is similar biochemical verification of that. So here we have a, a very interesting story about the evolutionary history of some of the regulatory mechanisms within our genome. We think some of them came from these ancient transposons, so it's not only a change of a C to an A or something like that that might be important, but a big change caused by duplicating a whole segment of DNA which might have been carried around by one of these transposons. Other scientists have found this, and other people before us, namely Britton and Davidson, and even early on, Barbara McClintock in the 40s hypothesized that these elements might be important for gene regulation. It appears that that is true. So in closing, uh, we have an enormous challenge right now to look at the entire genome, to look at all of the information in the human genome and the genome of related species, and try to figure out how did we get here? How do we get to be the way we are? For me, I love paleontology and we want to work with anthropologists and paleontologists in particular but there are more old clues in the genome than you will ever get digging up sites. There are complementary pieces of, uh, of evidence, but the sheer numbers, there are enormous stories that are, that are woven around very small finds in these other areas. Whereas we are absolutely swimming in data and we will be overwhelmed with millions of changes that we can deduce by being DNA paleontologists. And this is an exciting area at this point, very cross-disciplinary. I think we'll understand a lot about our genome. How does it function? What are the important elements that make us tick? We'll also find the evolutionary innovations that made us different. And this is, is, is a task that I think um, will occupy an enormous number of uh, scientists for the, for the next few decades. It's not irrelevant for medicine and biology. My closing side is, if you look, sorry, medicine and society, if we really understand the genetic variation, kind of the next phase of research as we start to understand how people differ, the important areas will be these functional elements. That 5% of the genome, that's where you care about the functional differences. The other 95% is probably junk and it won't matter if I have an A and you have a C. But in this 5%, it might matter. And we have to understand how how it matters. Does it affect your health risk? Does it affect your response to treatment? And This will have an impact on you if we we can gain this kind of understanding. I want to thank the UCSC team. This is a huge team of people. The browser team, uh, the wet lab team, uh, they are absolutely uh, tremendous. None of this could have happened without the exceptional dedication of these people. I can't name everybody uh, individually. I'll put up a slide with the names in a minute. Uh, the wet lab is rather new. This is a shot just of the wet lab um, and, and they are an incredibly enthusiastic group and have already made uh, amazing uh, discoveries just in the last year. Um, here, are, here are the names uh, and again I still need to update this a bit but um, my thanks to uh, an amazing group. Thank you. Are there questions? Yes? The little louder. Um, so it, first of all, in general, um, the highly conserved region on the X chromosome, there, there aren't additional regions on the X chromosome. We don't have more regions on the X than on the autosomes. In that case. Uh, there, of course, the X is special uh, in, that, in that some of us have two copies and some of them have one, um, and so uh, we, we don't have any specific uh, evidence for a special kind of epigenetic effects uh, of the type that, you know, if you think about um, uh, some of the things that happen on, on the autosomes, uh, that uh, this is cases where it matters which parent you got things from, and so forth. We don't want to get too much into details here, but there there aren't any specific effects uh, of the type that have been documented for some of the uh, autosomal genes. Um, so we don't we don't have a uh, uh, we don't have a specific story to tell. But there isn't there isn't a uh, there isn't a simple pattern that distinguishes the autosomes from the sex chromosomes in these types of regions. Let me say that. I think it's kind of what you're getting at. Yes? Another question? Yes? Unfortunately, we can only go back uh, about 50,000 years in sequencing ancient DNA. Um, So the type of time that we're talking about, which is not 50,000, but more like 50 million years, uh, is is inaccessible to ancient DNA sequencing. However, uh, there are other species that lived less than 50,000 years ago. In particular, you may have seen the news that the Neanderthal Genome Project has been launched. Uh, and there we can get Neanderthal samples that are less than 30,000 years old, and that is in the range of being able to sequence it. Older DNA, unfortunately, a million-year-old DNA is too degraded to sequence. So we infer the evolutionary history by a kind of Occam's razor logic. Uh, we can see that... All of the species are the same except for one clade, one part of the tree, one subtree, and then they all have a new change. So probably there was one change at that point, and we do that kind of reasoning. And all the mathematical simulations and what our knowledge of the way evolution works and so forth support this. But, and we can actually go back and synthesize the ancestral protein. And several scientists have done that. There are about a dozen papers now where somebody has said, well, therefore, the protein must have looked like this. I'm going to synthesize the protein in my lab and prove that it has certain properties that would make sense. We can do that. But we can't actually dig up the DNA and prove that it was that way. Yes? Two Do the genes that tend to be around the conserved regions tend to be transferred to Yes. Very good observation. The genes, if you find a cluster of these highly conserved elements and, you, and they cluster around a certain gene, chances are that it's a transcription factor. They're not always that's not always true, but they are greatly enriched for transcription factors. And now uh, if you look over a uh, time course of development of different species, do these genes have similar expression patterns even though one species may have both conserved genome and another species may not? So you know we haven't done enough uh, comparative genomics of the expression pattern in different species to be able to give a definitive answer to that. Uh, the, as you know, the most tractable experimental model is the mouse model, and so we usually do our experiments, and then if you wanted to check that, you, if you wanted to say, well, is the, is the developmental expression pattern? Similar in another species, you would have to go through and do the experiments in that other mammalian species, and so forth. And so we haven't. It's it's difficult to uh, it's difficult to, to do these tests in a number of species. And when it comes to primates, uh, it's you know you when one has a difficulty. Uh, do you, is it is it has it reached the threshold of of importance for science and medicine that we want to actually do these experiments in primates. And many times, that's a very high threshold. It certainly is to me. I really think twice about before I would want to do these experiments in primates. So this becomes difficult to get enough different species to answer your question. Yes? It's quite possible. Yes, it's quite possible that it acts as a transcription factor, even though it isn't a protein. Um, And we don't know whether it acts in partnership with proteins. Maybe it forms some complex of RNA and protein and acts in that way, or maybe it performs directly as an RNA. These are questions that uh, we're still looking at. Uh, Jason Underwood, I don't know whether Jason is here, has been studying. There you are, Jason, has been studying that, that very question. Um, so what what is the, from a biochemical point of view, how does it act? Yes. Well, it's, yeah, in my own journey, uh, I've been interested in computer algorithms and statistics and uh, molecular biology I only had passing uh, encounters with early in my career. Uh, I got increasingly interested when the first DNA sequences came out. and. Uh, I've moved, you know, very strongly into working in a molecular biology framework just in the last several years. It's fun to cross disciplinary boundaries, and and I think the combination of uh, the statistics and the computer analysis, which is the only really, the only way to approach three billion bases of DNA in all of these different species, um, with the actual laboratory work to get in and, and verify the finds, is, is essential. You need both com- components if you're really going to do discovery in the fast lane, which is what it's all about these days. Uh, we're all amped up with the computers and, and getting high-throughput experimental results, and, and, and that you need. you need both ends of that. And, and we're very pleased at Santa Cruz to have a very strong bioinformatics uh, group combined with an excellent molecular biology group. In general, not just um, not my research, but the other research that's happening on campus is terrific. Yes? So what do you think about any new genes, like a very new genes, or the new genes in, for example, like the uh, introduction of the elements? Yes. And you maybe the genes being silent, mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. But what about right? So what about new? And I think you mean new protein coding genes. Yes. So um, so at some point in evolution, new protein coding genes must must be invented because, as you point out, I I I showed two that have been lost, right? And we would eventually, if we only lost genes, we wouldn't be many left. Uh, so protein coding genes evolved mainly by duplication. So what happens is there's a duplication of an existing protein coding gene, and then one of the copies is essentially free to evolve, while the other one maintains the ancestral function. This is usually what happens, and and the uh, process of the second one evolving is, some, is either uh, is called neofunctionalization. Uh, there's also a process where the multi the original gene had two functions, and each one of the duplicates uh, specializes in one of the functions called subfunctionalization. I think most of, that, most of the events uh, that created new genes were of that type. Uh, retrotransposons can also do this, and there's some very exciting work by Robert Beersch that we're just trying to write up now that shows that retrotransposons can, can create new coding uh, regions or within existing genes, or actually completely novel, duplicated genes occasionally, um, in addition to the more standard process of segmental duplication where you duplicate the whole gene. Um, these events are exciting. And, and of course, Robert isn't the first one to make this observation, but he's got a very comp- comprehensive analysis now. Um, these events are very exciting. They're fairly rare uh, in terms. So if you take a scale of mammalian evolution, uh, there were uh, a number of genes that have expanded by duplication processes, but, but it's, a, it's a minority uh, of genes that have expanded that way. Um, We would love to find genes that are more or less created out of previously non-coding DNA by some lucky mutation, but I think that is extremely rare uh, in evolution. It's hard to invent a whole protein-coding gene out of previously non-coding DNA. Okay, it's 5.15. Thanks very much.